Welcome to the Freedom California podcast. I'm your host, Samuel Coleman, Outreach Director for the State of California. This week, I'm joined by Matthew Hayward, Washington Outreach Director, and Ashley Varner, Vice President of Communications. Join us this week as we discuss censorship, SEIU 1000's massive membership drop, and an update on our forgery lawsuits. Stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of the Freedom California podcast. Uh, As usual, I am your host, Samuel Coleman, the Outreach Director for the Freedom Foundation in California. I'm joined by Matthew Hayward, the Outreach Director for the State of Washington, and Ashley Varner, our Vice President of Communications. Uh, Guys, I hope you guys have uh, managed to survive the election. I know that there was a couple stressful days, but kind of hoping that things will start to normalize a little bit. Um, To get normal for a while. Well, your hats. But I think that um, the first topic kind of goes well with a lot of the things that we saw around the election, which is um, Janice, you know, ultimately is, or Janice B. asked me, the Supreme Court case, ultimately is a First Amendment Supreme Court case. Um, it has very little to do with, with the unions particularly, and has a lot more to do with the First Amendment rights of public employees. Um, and I think we saw a lot of this around the election with some censorship on Twitter and Facebook, that the First Amendment is really critically important for a functioning democracy. Um, So I want to toss this question over to you, Ashley, since you manage quite a few of our uh, social media accounts. Have we noticed any kind of censorship happening to our Freedom Foundation Twitter accounts or Facebook accounts? Well, we've been um, banned from Twitter for a year now. Um, Not banned from Twitter. We've been banned from being able to boost, to put money behind some of our tweets to elevate our message to more people and to um, target certain geographic areas. Uh, Twitter did in November or December of last year, they made some changes, um, but it was to their political, the political content. So, you know, if we're not talking about a bill, um, a specific politician, or an election cycle, our content often is not actually, it's educational. We're trying to get the word out to people that it's your First Amendment right to free speech and free freedom of association um, as well to not fund a union with your paycheck as a, as a taxpayer-funded employee. Um, we, I went to a Twitter a discussion, kind of a, a teaching guide for numerous organizations in the DC area. And the Twitter people had as an example of an organization who could have some political content that they wouldn't be able to boost on Twitter would be political. It was like unions, get out the, get out the vote um, posts on Twitter. But they then specifically used content where a union was Um, announcing some sort of training that they were putting on and they said this wasn't political and so therefore they would be able to boost that. We've been banned from everything and I've tried three different times um, to engage them in conversation. Can you explain to me why I was at your training in DC in December? Can you explain to me why the unions can still do it but we can't do even our announcements, our educational posts and they, they won't give us an answer, and then they just stopped answering my emails, so. Right, so like even like, uh, a legal update or 
if we wanted to post something about uh, the latest judgment having to do with uh, forgeries, uh, we can't boost that. We can't push push that out, even though there's no political uh, comments at all. No, we are not allowed on Twitter to boost anything. We did lose the right to boost on Facebook for a couple of months, I think. Yeah. Um, had a meeting with the Facebook folks and we did have those restored, but we have to be very careful not to put anything up that they would deem political. So. Right. I know a major, I guess, point of news that happened over the last few weeks was Twitter disabling the, uh, the Twitter account for the uh, New York Post, you know, the um, news outlet that was founded by Alexander Hamilton. Um, so when we're talking about censorship, I think an important question here to ask is, does Twitter have some sort of obligation to uphold people's First Amendment rights? Or, you know, as a, a private entity, do they have some sort of leeway in deciding what gets to be on their platform? Uh, Matt, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think that's a, a great point. And, you know, to that end, I, I believe that when they came out and uh, banned the story that was put out about Hunter Biden's laptop, uh, they wanted to independently verify the information, but they're not the ones who had the source. That's not how media works, right? A, a source went to the paper and gave them the information um, and they had it. So uh, it, it is definitely problematic if Facebook or other social media platforms are, or other news stations, frankly, are going to take the position that uh, they don't want to run with the story or play a story uh, unless they're the ones who get to run the story originally. And as Glenn Greenwald recently in an interview alluded to, um, it was very obvious that the reason why that story wasn't being picked up is because it hurt Joe Biden. And they did not want to have pressure put on them by their colleagues for helping to elect Donald Trump or reelect Donald Trump. And so... Uh, I think that we have a terrible problem in our culture, uh, our news culture, um, and, and, and not being able to get out that news and get out that information um, and let people decide and let people interpret it how they want and, and see what happens. But um, I don't know. I think we have a real problem when we're censoring news organizations, uh, not just people. Uh, you know, they, they pointed out when you start censoring, you've got to be careful because you start with extremists, right? And you want to censor uh, radical extremists or violent uh, people inciting violence. And then you start moving down the line and it gets more and more dangerous. Then you want to do get rid of conspiracy theorists and people like Alex Jones. Uh, and it just keeps going and going. And then you're, then you're silencing the Freedom Foundation and then you're silencing newspapers. And where does this end? Um, you know, the, the, the silencing of messages that you don't agree with for the public good, right? Yeah, um, the Media Research Center. So the Freedom Foundation is part of um, a coalition of groups that actually work on free speech issues. Um, and we keep in touch with each other's um, organizations as to, uh, you know, how are you being treated on Twitter? Are you having any problems with Facebook? Can we help elevate this message? We're not getting as many followers as we used to. So we have this ongoing conversation and uh, Media Research Center just this week actually um, did a study and they found that 4.6% um, of Democrats who voted for Joe Biden said they wouldn't have voted for him if they had known about the Hunter Biden story before they voted. So 
it, the media is definitely a player in, in the political world and in this particular election. And, and to the extent that it was discussed, it was dismissed as uh, Russian propaganda right off the bat, right? When it was first brought up, uh, it was just alleged, completely baseless, saying, oh, that's just a, a Russian propaganda setup. They had absolutely no evidence to suggest that whatsoever. They just wanted to dismiss the story out of hand. And meanwhile, we've been hearing Russian collusion and Russian hoax for the last four years. So, so moving away from Moving away from Russia, which I know is difficult to do, because uh, it seems like we keep coming back to Russia. Um, when we talk about censorship, I think what we see a lot is this sort of conservative censorship. And I think we see a lot of liberal folks not being affected by it. Would it make anyone feel better if we just censored everybody? Or should we, you know, what do you, what do you guys think? I'm seeing a lot of shaking head. You don't like that idea. <laughs> you don't want to censor your enemies? Possible. No, you report, let me decide. I think there's a news network who used to say that. Used to. <laughs> My favorite is when it, uh, things are listed on social media as uh, fake news or, or false information or something of that nature. And if you pull it up and read it, it turns out they don't dispute the facts. And they, and they acknowledge that the claim is accurate and is true. They just don't like the way that it's being portrayed. And I'm going, Wow. So you're going to categorically say that this is fake and put that out and label that and tell people that this is not good news when really it's just you don't like it because of your your political view, because of your sway. Like you don't like the way that it could be interpreted by other people. I mean, I just think that's insane when you when you when you realize that it isn't actually challenging the factual statement being made in the article. That's just shocking. Yeah, and I, I think I have noticed quite a bit on Facebook, and it is a, a new interesting pastime to go through what the fact checkers on Facebook say is wrong and sort of get a good chuckle out of the fact that, like you said, they never seem to dispute that the information is wrong. They just dispute that the way that it's being presented is accurate. So it's, it's always hilarious to go through. But I, would, I, I think that this is an important topic, but I'd like to move on now to our second topic, which is uh, quite a bit different. Um, so SEIU 1000, I feel like we talk about them every other week, but we do have some very interesting things to report about them. So there was a piece of investigative journalism done by the Sacramento Bee. And what they found was that over the course of the pandemic, the last you know seven, eight months or so, or I guess, I don't even know how long it's been going on for now. It feels like years. But what they found was that over the last few months, um, SEIU 1000 had lost about 3% of their total membership. And they are a union of, I believe, 95,000 to 100,000 people. Not only had they lost 3% of their membership, but their pool of potential employees, so people who entered the bargaining unit but did not sign up for the union, had increased by 3,500 people, while their total members decreased by about, I think, 1,300. So they added, you know, almost three times as many people to the bargaining pool as they lost, which is really interesting. Um, one of the reasons that the union gave for not being able to keep up on recruitment was this inability to hold captive audience one-on-one -on -one meetings when people are hired. Yep. Um, I think as, as Matt can probably attest to um, 
you know, if, if you're a union and you have the ability to sit alone in a room with somebody for an hour and talk to them and try to tell them all the different ways why they should sign up for a membership form, it is quite a bit easier to get that person to sign that form. Um, I don't, Matt, have you ever heard of anyone who, you know, was actually able to sit through an hour of being badgered by the union and not sign a membership form? You know, I, I have, um, but typically if there isn't somebody in one of those meetings, uh, if there are several people, if you don't have someone who stands up and really pushes back, you typically get uh, 99 to 100% of those people joining the union. Uh, we've actually talked to people who have come out of those meetings and walked right up to us and asked for a form to opt out. And we're going, why did you sign up in the first place? And it was always something along the lines of, you know, they intimidated, it was intimidating. You know, they walked up and pushed it in front of me. I felt like I had to. Um, there's all kinds of different reasons, but they just wanted to be left alone. They're like, fine, I'll just sign this so you leave me alone. And uh, they would say things like, hey, I need you to fill this out before I leave. Uh, so they fill it out and then they think they can just walk out and sign out and they uh, or opt out and they can't uh, often. But, but no, I think they do typically do a very good job of getting people to sign those cards. Like I said, there are the occasion when somebody stands up and pushes back. And what's interesting is when that happens, usually no one joins. If one person in a room with 20 people starts questioning the union representative and asks things like, do I have to join? Do I have to pay you a monthly? How much do I have to pay per month? How much of my dues do you spend on representation and how much do you spend on unrelated political activities? Um, the union dodges those questions and uh, it doesn't make them look good. They get frustrated and their tension builds in the room. And when that happens, it's human nature to not make a decision. People just don't want to do anything at that point. Uh, so I think that that's also interesting to, to note that when you do have someone challenging it, people aren't typically gonna join. Yeah, and I, I think that that is really interesting. And that is true. I, I know the Freedom Foundation, even before Janice came down, we were still canvassing at IHSS meetings, um, in-home supportive care personnel who you know take care of their sick grandparent or disabled, you know, mother. Um, even before Janice, we were active at those. And I know that, that a big part of those uh, training sessions was trying to get somebody in the room who had taken a flyer beforehand who could actually dispute what the union was saying and try to save these people some money. Um, I think the real question here, though, is so if you're a union and you're not able to sit somebody down for an hour and coerce them into signing a form and you're not able to sell yourself in that way, right? You can't convince them to sign the form off the bat. How exactly do you then turn around and say, we're a union, we're valuable, we're fighting for your rights, we're getting you raises and people aren't signing up? You know, what do unions have to sell exactly? What do you guys think? I think that's exactly right. It, it proves that they're not providing a product that people would willingly pay their hard-earned money for. And rather than improving their services, improving their rep representation, they're just trying to intimidate, bully, and prevent people from learning about their rights. It's easier for the union to do that, to try to keep up their business model, than to actually improve the service that they're providing. And the fact that they can't be in a room with people 
in order to do that, that high pressure sales pitch, the, uh, the timeshare pitch, you know, um, it, it does prove that people, when they don't have to be bullied, um, they don't necessarily want to be part of the union. Well, part of it is it's almost that they're being, um, I don't know, tricked or misled about their rights mm -hmm. when the union is in the room and the union can't effectively do that over the phone or by email. They sound like a scam artist if they call you over the phone and try to talk you out of your money and try to talk you into joining when you're, you know, you get a phone call from some guy from a union, you know, if you're not a union person or you don't know a lot about unions, you're thinking, who is this person calling me, telling me they represent me and asking me for, you know, however, however much money a month. Um, they're just not going to be very effective at that. And they obviously can't go door to door right now. That wouldn't look good on them. Uh, and they don't have them in those, those, those meetings, one-on-one, uh, -on -one, like you said, in person. So they're going to have a really hard time talking people into voluntarily joining the union. Uh, they say it's always voluntary, and technically it is. But again, as we we're talking about, it doesn't feel voluntary when you're in that room. You can mm -hmm. ask anybody who was not happy with joining the union that was in that room that joined the union. It does not feel voluntary to them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. And I'll tell you, the calls I get from most people or the calls I get most are from IHSS providers who will say, I went there because, you know, I'm trying to take care of my, my mother, my sister, whoever. And this union guy told me I had to sign up and give them, you know, 40 bucks a month in order to have my job. Is that true? We tell them no. And then they say, well, I already signed something. Can I get my money back? And then in most cases, we have to say no. Um, you know, you signed an authorization form, it's going to require legal action or something. So it is heartbreaking that that happens, but I am kind of glad right now, at least that it's a lot harder to make that happen. So I think at this point, uh, it's a good time for us to take a little break, but um, stick around after the break and we'll be right back with some more information. If you like what we do and you want to see more of it, please consider making a small financial contribution. The Freedom Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and all donations are 100% tax deductible. Visit freedomfoundation.com slash donate. Welcome back everyone. Thank you for sticking around after the break. Um, our final topic for the day is I think very much related to our first two, uh, the First Amendment and SAE 1000. Um, and that would be our forgery cases. So Ashley, uh, could you tell us a little bit about where forgery cases currently are? Absolutely. And this, it, you're right, it does tie into what we've been talking about when the unions can't uh, intimidate, bully you, um, keep you from knowing about your rights. If all else fails, they will just forge your name. They will forge your signature on a membership card. We have seen it now in a dozen active legal lawsuits that we have going on. Um, we have a couple in California. We have a couple in Oregon and a couple in Washington state currently working their way through the court system. And some of them are more egregious than others. One of our gentlemen in California has been trying to get out of his union for 19 years. Um, and he doesn't remember having ever signed a card. They won't show him his card. Um, he's, moved to three different counties in California, and they're still taking dues out of his paycheck. He's an in-home care provider. His wife is blind. He's taking care of her. The union is taking money away from these people. Uh, it's really, truly disgusting. We also have a case in California where 
um, a woman is taking care of her disabled daughter. And again, she never signed a card. She asked to see the card. Uh, when they finally gave her the card, it was, it was clearly not her signature and had wrong biographical information on it. The unions actually think that they are so entitled to your money that they will take from people who need that money for their medical care, for their day-to-day -day living expenses, um, so that they can be taken care of in their own home instead of being put in a facility. It's truly remarkable, uh, but it just shows how low the unions will go because they're not providing the service that people would willingly sign up for and give their hard-earned money. And Matt, I think that this is exactly something you said just a few minutes ago. It may be voluntary to join the union and leave the union, but it, it certainly does not feel voluntary. Right, right. Well, yeah, and I was going to mention when Ashley was talking, it reminded me of a court case we had in Washington several years ago, um, Miranda Thorpe. And so this was after the Harris decision in 2014, but before Janice in 2018. And what we found is they were taking money from in-home care providers in Washington state who had never signed union membership cards. They didn't have forged signatures. They simply just never joined. They weren't, they had never signed anything. They weren't part of the union. And so we sued saying, hey, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that these people don't have to belong to the union. And they never joined the union, so they don't belong. And uh, the union defended that all the way to the Washington State Supreme Court. And we actually lost that case in Washington State in our Supreme Court. They ruled 9-0 that unions had the right to take money from in-home care providers without consent and assume their union membership. They had to affirmatively opt out. When they became a union member, they were automatically, or when they became an uh, in-home health care provider, they were automatically a union member. And so that was part of our amicus brief to the United States Supreme Court with the Janus decision. We highlighted what happened here in Washington and let them know uh, when you decide this case, if you decide to give workers this right, uh, this right to work, you need to clarify affirmative consent because it isn't good enough to simply say, you don't have to join the union. You, you need to make it clear that someone has to join the union to be part of the union. And so they did. They made it very clear in the Janus decision that there must be affirmative consent to join the union, which leads us to the, uh, the forgery cases, right? Because they had, there were so many people that they had never gotten signatures from because they simply didn't have to. They were able to take their money um, legally in, in Washington state <laughs> uh, without consent. So... And we've had a problem with electronic signatures as well. We've seen several cases of electronic signatures. Person knows that they never went to this website and signed up. Um, there are a couple of cases where it's a, a verbal audio splicing. So a union rep calls you. Mm -hmm. Do you like to join the union? They say no. They say, okay, would you like us to stop calling you? Yes. They take the yes and they put it as part of their file that they said yes to join in the union. We're aware of at least two cases, I believe, that we're working on right now. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds criminal to me. But unions are so great that, you know, that they have to do that. Exactly. Right? Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? <laughs> you know, we've seen it backfire. I mean, I tell the story regularly about 
uh, the gentleman who was a corrections officer. I think I might've even talked to you guys about it on the last time I was on, but it's such a compelling story because he was a lifelong Teamsters. He was a union guy and he thinks unions are good. And he thinks that there's, they have good purpose. And uh, after the Teamsters had um, lied to his face about the card and been tricking people into signing their rights away where the fine print said, this is an irrevocable form. And he questioned them specifically about it. And they lied right to his face. He called them on it. He ended up getting everyone to go grab their cards back from that shop steward and then came and filmed a video with us and said, I don't want anything to do with a union like this. I don't care what they do for me. I don't want any part of an organization that behaves this way. And I think we're seeing more and more of that with, uh, with many different unions where their behavior uh, and their willingness to go to any lengths to take money from people, to lie people, uh, to lie to people and trick people is undermining any good that they may be doing. Well, that's why we've helped over 80,000 people since June, 2018. As the word gets out, they're leaving in droves. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Matt, Ashley, thank you for joining me this week. Um, before we go, though, I wanted to say that the Freedom Foundation has also started an account on Parler. Um, so you can feel free to search us up on Parler. I believe you can just find us at Freedom Foundation. Is that correct, Ashley? Matt? Yep. At Freedom Foundation. At Freedom Foundation. Okay. Well, again, Matt, Ashley, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much.